Please do have First um, Thessalonians 2 open with you if you, if you can on your device or, um, or on your, uh, in your physical Bible. That would be great um, just to f- be able to follow along. Um, as we go. Uh, last week we were in um, chapter 1 of First Thessalonians in this new series that we're calling Double Vision, uh, this wonderful letter that Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica to encourage them to keep going in this life, and they can keep going in this life because they have such security of what is coming next, of the future is so secure that they can be confident in the present. And so in chapter 1 we saw Paul seeking to encourage that Thessalonian church, expressing his thanks and and graciousness and, and uh, sorry, grace, uh, gratitude sorry, to God for their faith. And so Paul, Silas, and Timothy, as they write this letter, they are thanking God for how he has saved them, how he has saved the Thessalonian Christians. They have received his message of forgiveness and grace, and their lives are, are clearly demonstrating that reality. We talked last week about how their faith was visible. There was a work produced by faith, a labor prompted by love, an endurance inspired by hope. The faith that they were grounded in was visible in, their, in the way they lived their lives. And therefore, Paul, through the second half of that chapter, seemed to be seeking to encourage them to therefore live that faith confidently. They could be confident that Christ had indeed saved them because only Christ can. Only Christ can open spiritually blind eyes. Only Christ can rescue uh, into his eternal kingdom. And from what Paul has seen and heard of their faith, Clearly, the fruit of repentance is there. They have turned to God from idols. And so their lives demonstrate the faith. And so they can live that confidently, even if they are currently suffering for that faith. And so all of that, Paul's encouragement to them of their visible and confident faith, it it leads Paul and his companions to thanksgiving. Uh, The way they open verse 2 with their prayer of chapter 1, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. So that seems to be the thrust of chapter one. And then in chapter two, what we're now going to see, and as we've heard it read already, perhaps you were able to pick up on some of the background that has gone on to this letter, not just in the establishment of the church, but then in what has prompted the writing of this letter. You see, we have Paul's letter to the Thessalonian churches, or Thessalonian church, and it's a bit like hearing one side of a conversation. And we, we get to hear how Paul writes and responds and teaches how he encourages, how he he seems to be dealing with very real questions and and fears that have come back to him, as we'll see from chapter 3, when Timothy has brought a report from the church. And so Paul is responding to some of this stuff, but we only get to hear one side. Yet from what he says, we can can fairly well deduce what has been asked. And what we see through part of this passage for today in these first 16 verses of chapter 2 is that clearly there are some in Thessalonica, either within the church or from outside, who are questioning the validity of Paul's ministry there. And perhaps you can remember back to our first week where we looked at Acts chapter 17, where we see the establishment of this church in Thessalonica. Paul and his companions are there for three Sabbath days. They preach in the synagogue. The church is formed. And then disruption comes. People gather from within the city and seek to thwart what is going on. They're threatened by this new claim of a new king, King Jesus, against Caesar. And so Paul and Silas, certainly, if not Timothy as well, are driven out of the city. The believers sneak them away under the cover of darkness, and they head from Thessalonica to Berea. And it seems like then some of the accusations might well have come not only to the church, but have now made their way back to Paul of, well, can you trust this guy? 
look at look at what happened when he came. All he did was cause you trouble, and let alone not only that. Now the trouble has come. He's done one. He's gone. How can you really trust whether he is really a true, genuine messenger of the gospel? Or was he just essentially a traveling salesman wanting to gather a crowd and maybe even get a few quid from their pockets? Is is that who Paul was? Maybe some of those questions were being asked in Thessalonica. Certainly from what we see, and obviously all those accusations have no basis at all. And Paul now, as he writes in chapter 2, he's defending himself and defending his ministry there. And he's making it crystal clear that that he wants the Thessalonians to consider the impact and the outcome of his ministry there. And he's convinced, and they should be too, that the time that Paul and Silas spent in the city was incredibly profitable from from a gospel point of view. And so essentially Paul is calling through this passage to the Thessalonians to say, look at the fruit that came from that ministry. Examine the fruit and you will see that underneath that fruit was a genuine gospel ministry taking place. This was not false. This was not a charlatan at work. This was genuinely God at work because look at what has been produced and only God could bring that to be. And so in verse one, we read, you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. The ESV has that as our coming to you was not in vain. There was good. There was a, it, was, it had a positive effect. There was good gospel fruit that was born. And so as we read through these first 16 verses, we're going to see Paul deliver some teaching and much encouragement. And, and essentially it's around this idea of whether uh, how the church should define fruitful ministry. What is fruitful gospel ministry? How do we measure it? How do we recognize it? How do we know that God is truly at work? And there's going to be at least three main things that I think we see from genuine, true, fruitful gospel ministry. And and perhaps you're you're thinking, that that sounds a bit ethereal, a bit airy-fairy. I'm not sure how relevant that is for me as I sit here in a chair in Gilnahirk, ready to go to work tomorrow or look after the grandkids or whatever you're working into, walking into. But not at all. You see, I think it's so important for us to be able to recognize genuine gospel ministry, not just here at Gilnerk Baptist, but also as we have such free access to such a volume of teaching and resources from around the world, we need to recognize true gospel fruit, true genuine gospel ministry. Because unfortunately, there are false teachers who who lack integrity, who who seek to build a platform for themselves. and ultimately do great harm to to those who follow and indeed to the reputation of the gospel. So it's good for us to know, well, what does genuine gospel ministry look like? How how can that be defined so that we can recognize it when we see it? Uh, And speaking personally for a moment, as as pastor here, I've been really challenged by these verses this week. Um, Someone that I was speaking to about this book uh, said, yes, don't we see through the letter to the Thessalonians, don't we see Paul as the kind of pastor you want to have? Now, I don't think it was a direct critique, um, but I can see exactly what the point was. We see Paul's incredible love for these people. We see his passion for the gospel to be proclaimed to them and then at work among them and shared from them to the, to the world around. And so we see such a, I've almost seen these as, as aspirational verses uh, in, terms of, in terms of our ministry here. But it has, it has driven me also to pray that our gospel ministry in this place would be fruitful, 
truly biblically fruitful, not because of, of personalities or abilities of elders and leaders of ministries, no, but because God is at work. Because he is bringing fruit. He is drawing people to himself. Um, and so may we see that more and more. And I think we'll recognize when that is happening, um, when we see, as I said, at least these three things. How would we define fruitful ministry? Well, through this passage, I think we see these three things. We see that fruitful ministry is evident where we see a declaration of the gospel, where we see a display of the gospel, and we see devotion to that gospel. So a declaration of the gospel, the gospel is made clear. It is, it is presented boldly and faithfully. There's a display of the gospel that those involved in, in sharing the gospel live that out in their lives. And then we also see that devotion to the gospel, that whatever happens as a response to sharing that gospel, there is a faithfulness to it. And there's an endurance through it that is inspired by the truth of the gospel. So let's, let's begin by thinking about this declaration of the gospel. And let me reread verses 2 to 6. So Paul writing to the church. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we, are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know that we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. And so it seems through these verses, we see Paul's commitment to the gospel message that it would reach far and wide, that even though they had been treated outrageously in Philippi, which you can read about in Acts 16, they come to Thessalonica with the desire to boldly proclaim that gospel even more. Opposition was not going to stop them. And indeed in verse 2, with the help of God, we dared to tell you the gospel in the face of strong opposition. Opposition didn't put them off. Indeed, it only spurred on their boldness, it seems. And they did that. They were able to do that. They were, they, they were motivated to share this gospel, to declare this gospel, because they knew the content of it and they knew the source of it. They knew the content of the gospel was true, that Jesus Christ saves sinners. They knew that and that compelled them to share that message. It is good news. That's what gospel means. Message being sent. It is a good news message. And so it compelled them to share that, to declare that gospel. But they also knew the source of that message. It was not something they created themselves. We'll see that later from verse 13 and 14. But we also see it here in verse 4. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. See, God has entrusted them with his message. And so they are compelled to share, to, to, to proclaim, to declare. And so God has given them this wonderful message to share. And whatever happened, even if that meant opposition... They were going to keep on declaring the gospel. And so their ministry was not based on how it was received. The ministry was not measured as a quote-unquote success, depending on the numbers who flocked to hear that message. No, the success for Paul seems to be, we just declare the message. We share the gospel, however it's received. We do so boldly with the help of our God. And they're able to do all of that because, as we see in verse 4, the real crux of their motivation, we are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. See, Paul's showing 
that if their goal had been to win favor with people, it wouldn't have looked like this. If their goal was to draw a crowd and to be, become famous in some way, then, then their ministry would not have looked like beatings and imprisonment and hardship and being opposed and being rejected. It would have been considered a complete failure. But because they knew that their job was to declare the gospel, then they did that, however it was going to be received. And that's a challenge, isn't it? See, the, the point Paul is making here through this section is that they are not marching to the beat of popular opinion. Everyone, everything they do was to glorify God. It was from him, it was for him, it was to him. And so as we see here, as we flick through this passage in verse 2, we see that it was God who gave help to boldly proclaim. Their message was God-equipped. God enabled this boldness. In verse 4, as we've read, it was God who approved them as ones to be entrusted with the gospel. This was God-approved, God-ordained ministry. And then we see from the rest of verse 4 that they're not trying to please people, but God. It is God-focused. And so their declaration of the gospel is God-equipped. It is God-approved. It is God-focused. God is at the heart of everything they are doing, and that is what brings fruitful ministry. However, we may think and define fruit. Fruitful ministry is God-equipped, God-approved, God-focused. It is declaring his good news however that may be received. And so because Paul knew that they came to Thessalonica and they did this, they, they declared the gospel, therefore they could say, our visit to you was not without results. They, they declared it. People responded and that was wonderful, joyous, of course it is. A church was formed. But Paul doesn't go around Asia Minor measuring the number of churches he, he he is able to create. He declares the gospel everywhere he goes, whether that's in Philippi as he's in prison or then as he's released and goes to Thessalonica to continue. So that is their motivation. That is their purpose, to go and declare the gospel. And we, we can see also this, this focus of their ministry as Paul explains what their communication is not. And this is where I think some of the accusations he might have heard Surely Paul was just here to flatter your ears. Surely he was just here with actually a, a pretense of greed. Surely he was wearing a mask and trying to trick you and all this stuff. And so Paul says that is absolutely what we did not do. We did not. Our communication was not from impure motives or error, nor were we trying to trick you in verse 3. It was not filled with flattery or delivered under, the ma under a mask to hide their greed. It was not motivated from praise from the crowd. And perhaps those things strike us as odd. I mean, is it possible that the gospel be shared with impure motives? That the gospel would be shared to trick people? The gospel would be shared as a mask for someone's greed? Well, unfortunately, it can be. By false teachers who distort the gospel for their own gain. False teachers who want to build their own platform, who want to increase their own bank balance. And so the motivation does not become God-focused, often it becomes people-focused. And, and for ministry, if a ministry is then people-focused, it becomes about watering down the edges of the gospel, watering down the call to discipleship, watering down the need for repentance. And what's left might sound like the gospel that we know, but it's not the true, genuine gospel of Jesus Christ. We've seen this in chapter 1. 
What does the gospel look like and what does turning to that gospel look like? Chapter 1, verse 9, they tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God. That's a costly call. Turning from the desires that we have to Christ because we know him to be more valuable. He is the treasure of all of heaven. But it's a costly call. But it's not necessarily a popular one. It's not going to win you a lot of friends or send your Instagram buzzing. And so... To enable that to please the crowd, there are some who, who distort the true nature of what repentance is, what coming to faith is, and it's dangerous. It's so dangerous because it sounds like it might be true. And so as, as you not only hear teaching from this place, but as you hear it from uh, the, the multitude of sources that we are blessed with in many ways, can I urge you to just be careful with what you listen to, what you watch, where your sources are. I'm not saying that that big is wrong. I'm not saying that those with a big following have done so because they just are desiring to please people. No, 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 no. But it's clear that Paul was not measuring the fruitfulness, the success, quote-unquote, of his ministry based on the numbers he received in Thessalonica. It was about declaring the gospel, the true gospel, and any gospel that is not salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is not good news. It's not gospel. And so so just be careful with what you listen to, what you hear, the sources that that are influencing our thinking. Anyone who, who removes something from or adds anything to Jesus is not teaching the true gospel. Paul clearly was. His motives were pure here. He knew the gospel and he wanted to share it in the face of strong opposition. He boldly declared it with the help of his God. His his ministry there was God-equipped, God-ordained, God-focused. They weren't there to draw a crowd for themselves. They were there to draw people to Jesus and to encourage others to imitate him. And so fruitful ministry looks like and is evidenced by a declaration of the gospel. Secondly, we see that fruitful ministry is also seen through the display of the gospel. Paul's going to tell us now what life was like when they were among the Thessalonian Christians. Let's read from verse uh, 7. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are our witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And so here we see, don't we, Paul's heart for the church, his deep love, his deep affection, whether it was caring for them as a mother in verse 7 and 8 or or as a father in verse 11 and 12. Even the ESV has has a phrase in there, rather than saying that we loved you so much, the ESV translates that we were affectionately desirous of you. We get the, we get the impression the emotion is coming out of the paper as we read. But but here's what I mean by by the gospel being on display. 
And we've seen Paul declare that gospel openly and boldly and faithfully, yes, but they did more than that. Verse 8 finishes with that phrase. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. And so they shared their lives with the Thessalonian believers, which means, as Paul goes on to show in verse 9, they sacrificed greatly for the benefit of the church. They, they endured hardship and toil and worked day and night so that they weren't a burden. Now, yes, that's probably referencing the fact that while they were in Thessalonica, they, they paid their own way, essentially, that these, these gospel ministers were there and weren't at all a material burden to the believers, which shows their integrity, doesn't it? They weren't there to gain any money for themselves. In fact, to, to make sure that, that they weren't a burden, they worked hard day and night, they toiled and labored. But it also shows that they were willing to sacrifice so that the Thessalonians would hear the gospel and believe. That they were willing to sacrifice so that the Thessalonians would believe. And, and isn't that the heart of the gospel? Where we see the greatest sacrifice that enables belief? The greatest sacrifice that enables and warrants trust? That's why we, were, we are able to sing. The gospel enables us to sing as we just have done. As to have done. Now the curse, it has been broken. Jesus paid the price for me. Full the pardon he has offered and great the welcome I receive. Because of everything Jesus has done, because he is the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice, who takes the penalty of sin in my place, then I can keep on singing that verse. Boldly I approach the Father. Clothed in Jesus' righteousness, there is no more guilt to carry. It is finished upon the cross. This is the gospel. And can you see then that the message of the gospel is sacrifice that leads to belief and trust. That's the basis of our ability to believe that Jesus sacrificed for us. And that, that faith, that belief, that trust, as we saw in chapter 1, it is then visible. It is then worked out, lived out in our lives. And so there, there's much that we could take from these verses in this section. But aren't we challenged by the question of how our lives display the gospel? Paul and his companions are able to say, we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And they were able to do that because they knew that their lives shared the gospel, showed the gospel. And so what they, the message they declared with their lips was backed up by the display of their lives. And that's a challenge. There was no gap between their talk and their walk. And, and here we see scripture once again held up to us like a mirror and we think, what's that gap like in my life? Could I say, I want to share the gospel with you and I want to show you with my life because the two things say the same thing. It is the one glorious message of the gospel. And so in other words, are our lives so centered on the gospel, so deeply rooted in the gospel that they display the gospel? And I'm sure like me, you know individuals who, who do that, who embody that. You know individuals who, whose lives display the gospel. They're a joy to be around. They're a calming presence in any setting you find themselves in. There's just a bubbling of joy underneath their hearts, whatever's going on. And so this is, not, this is not some kind of life that is only reserved for the super spiritual, only reserved for the very select few. This is what life in the gospel is intended to be. God calls us all to live this life. 
that what we believe transforms our hearts and our lives so much that we live it out. Therefore, that the message we speak and the life we live say the same thing. And that message is the gospel of Jesus. Maybe then of that challenge of verse 10 where Paul says, you know, and so does God, how holy, righteous, and blameless we were. I mean, that is a high bar. But God is at work in them. And so God is being shown through their lives. And oh, may our lives imitate the God that we trust in. May our lives reflect his beauty and his holiness to those who live around us. See, this sounds like fruitful ministry. The gospel is declared, the gospel is displayed. But it's not just for those in, again, quote-unquote, full-time Christian ministry. This is the life of a Christian. This is all of us, to live a life that declares the gospel, that displays the gospel. And then finally, let's finish off by thinking about that third aspect, the devotion to the gospel. And here we see in verses 13 to 16, Paul continuing to pray. And I do wonder whether that's continuing on from, from chapter 1. We, we read this now with chapter and verse breaks. But here we see verse 13 starts, and we also thank God continually. Well, he had been thanking God continually back in verse 2 of chapter 1. And now they're just continually giving thanks. And so we th- also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. See, Paul shows that the Thessalonians devoted themselves to the gospel because they received it not as a human message, but as God's word. And because it was God's word, it was was a word that then was indeed, verse 13, at work in you who believe. This is God's word, therefore it's authoritative. We're going to take it and hear it and live it out. And so they are deeply devoted to God's word. And one of the ways their devotion to God's word becomes evident is when suffering comes knocking. And as we've seen for the Thessalonian Christians, suffering came knocking quickly. Paul uses that imitation, that language of imitation again. And this time it's to commend the Thessalonians for taking their example from the faithful churches in Judea who had also suffered greatly at the hands of Jews who couldn't accept Jesus as Messiah. And it was this kind of group, this kind of teaching of of, Jesus can't be the Messiah, therefore you are teaching wrong truth. That kind of emphasis is what drove Paul and Silas out of this city in the first place, if you remember. It was the Jews in Thessalonica who then followed Paul and Silas to Berea and stirred up the crowd there against them. This is deep opposition to the message of the gospel. Clearly, there are some in the city who are working hard to try to thwart this new Christian church. But Paul commends them for standing firm. And why are they able to stand firm? Because we know this is God's word. This is not the message of humans. This is God's word. Therefore, we will devote ourselves to it. We know it to be true. We can see it at work in our lives. Therefore, let's stand under the pressure that we are under. 
And again, the, the connections to us might sound easy to make. Okay, we just need to stand firm. But obviously, we're not under the same kind of overt pressure for our faith that the Thessalonians were receiving here. But many of us know the difficulty of seeking to live a gospel life out in the world around us. Whether that's underhanded comments at work or just that sense of a squeezing of our freedom to express our faith. Or an exclusion from something, socially or otherwise. We, we know that pressure. So what does it mean to stand firm? How do we stand firm? We devote ourselves to the gospel. We remind ourselves of the great truths that we proclaim and we recognize the joy that those truths give us. Standing firm is not just about hunkering down. It's not just about sticking this out. Yes, there's a sense of that, of course. There must be perseverance. But this is the life of joy. And so it is standing firm. It is holding strong in joyful abandon to Jesus Christ. It is, not, it is not a fear-driven hunkering in. No, it is a joy-expressing standing firm. And maybe that sound is a bit far-fetched, a bit airy-fairy, a bit you know, coffee cup-ish. But it sounds like the type of life the Thessalonians are living. They are experiencing this kind of pressure, yet they are still having work produced by faith, labor prompted by love, and endurance inspired by hope. And so they are living a life devoted to the gospel, whatever that is going to cost them. And so may we take from their example, as the Thessalonians imitated the Judeans, may we imitate the Thessalonians. Their godly example of standing firm, of devoting ourselves so truly to the gospel, that this is not a mere human word. No, this is God's word to us. It is true. It is good. It is life-giving. It is eternal. It is right. And therefore, let's live in the light of it and stand firm based upon it. And so as we, as we come to a finish this morning, let's allow God to mold us through the example of this church in Thessalonica. As we seek to live a life with this same sense of double vision, where we're seeking to be so confident in our future that our lives in the present are impacted, let's seek to live fruitful lives for Jesus, lives that show a declaration for the gospel, a display of the gospel, a devotion to the gospel. May we boldly proclaim the wonderful good news message that he has called us to. May our lives be so impacted by his grace at work in us that the natural outflow from them and our determined actions also show the beauty of the gospel. And may we be so devoted in it that, that our, the words of our lips and the walk of our lives say the same thing, whatever comes against us. Would you pray with me as we finish? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is always good. It is always right and true. And you give it to us, Father, for our benefit and for your glory. And so we pray, Lord, that we would not just hear your word again this morning, but we would then go from here and do it. Lord, that we would know the, the, the boldness from you, the, the equipping of you to declare your gospel in the settings that you place us. Thank you, Father, for the places that you put us. Even if they're difficult, thank you for putting us there. So that we have then the opportunity to not just declare your gospel, but also to display your gospel 
as we remain fully devoted to it. Thank you, Father, that many of us know the joy of salvation. Many of us know this gospel as good news, not just generic good news, but it is good news for us because of what you have done in each of our hearts and lives, how you have opened our spiritual eyes to see our need for you and the full and and gracious pardon you give for sin when we come in repentance and faith. Thank you, Father. Lord, we do thank you that you've uh, gifted us in our world and in our context with so much good resource, biblical, faithful, true resource to help nourish our faith in you. And so we pray that however you enable that to happen in our lives from this week to next, Lord, we pray that we would be so devoted to your gospel that once again our lives would display it and declare it with our mouths. And we ask, Father, that all of that would be done for the glory of your name, the extension of your kingdom, for the stretching of your gospel in our world. And it's in your wonderful name we pray. Amen.